Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today it's an Alexander the Great podcast, but one maybe from a slightly unusual angle because we're going to be looking at Alexander the Great from the Persian perspective. And this was absolutely fascinating how Alexander's perception in Iranian history transforms over time from this hated figure into this legendary Iranian king. Joining me to talk about this remarkable transformation and Alexander the Great's perception as a whole is Ali Ansari. Ali is a professor from the University of St. Andrews and he is one of the leading authorities on the history of Iran. Enjoy. Ali, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Very good to be here. We are talking about Alexander the Great. He's one of the most complicated figures in history. And this is no less true when looking at him through the Persian perspective. It is. I mean, it's an interesting encounter the Persians have with Alexander, because if you look at the accounts, uh, contemporary accounts, and certainly the Zoroastrian accounts, there's nothing very great about Alexander. Um, he's really described as Alexander the Destroyer. He, he's been, uh, uh, he's not someone who they have a huge amount of affection for. And it's often quite difficult uh, to convey that to Western audiences who have always, always been brought up with the notion of Alexander as a sort of a great romantic hero uh, and liberator in some ways. Of course, from the Persian perspective, he's not liberating much at all. But then there's a second uh, interpretation of Alexander, which is essentially the Alexander romance, which is in integrated into the great narrative epic uh, poem of uh, the Persian world, the, the Book of Kings. And in there, of course, in, in classically uh, co-opted, uh, Alexander actually becomes a Persian prince. So, so in becoming a Persian prince, he actually becomes legit. Uh, I think basically he has a, uh, a Persian father and a, a Greek. I mean, obviously they call him Greek in the, in the Alexander romance. Um, uh, mother, and uh, he's basically half Persian, but as as such, he does have a claim. So it's not so much an invasion there. And then, of course, in the Alexander Romance, which is integrated into that, um, he does all these heroic things that you see uh, very commonly in other Alexander romances that are popular around the world. But initially, of course, he's seen as someone who's uh, uh, who's highly destructive and really a, a destroyer of the Persian Empire and civilization. Even if, really, in practice. Uh, from the Greek perspective and the Hellenic perspective, certainly Alexander's conquest 
of uh, the Persian Empire was a bit of a mixed, shall we say. It, was, it wasn't really an, entirely the conquest of Hellenism over the Persians because Alexander himself became quite tempted and seduced by all things Persian and started to adopt all sorts of Persian ways. So, you know, in some ways, it was a, it's, a, it's a much, much more complex inheritance than, than either narrative really gives, uh, gives out. Indeed, of course. I mean, let's start then with like, the more infamous yes. side of Alexander in Persian eyes with when Alexander arrives and the conquest. But just before Alexander arrives, the Persian Empire, this is one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest empire in the world. Well, for its time, the Persian Empire was the largest contiguous land empire in in history. It was um, obviously for its time, and we have to bear in mind it's very early days in the historical record, but it clearly was uh, regarded as something of a phenomenon at the time, because most Near Eastern empires at the time occupied parts of the Near East, either, you know, the Levant, Mesopotamia, you know, occasionally Anatolia, obviously the Egyptians obviously stretched a little bit. Here you have an empire that basically combines them all and stretches essentially at its maximum size, which, of course, with all empires, these are sort of um, brief periods. But nonetheless, at its maximum extent, it's stretched essentially from the Indus and the Oxus in the east, so covering huge tranches of Central Asia, what we have now, Central Asia, through to uh, essentially the Balkans, Thrace. So, you know, at one stage, Macedonia was really part of the Persian Empire, of course, and then through actually to Libya. So not just Egypt, but through up the coast of Libya. So it was vast. I mean, it was absolutely vast. And what's probably more uh, interesting about it is the way it was held together. I mean, it was largely held together through administration government, basically, good government. So I think it's excessive to say that, you know, they didn't have a, you know, there wasn't military conquest. Of course there was. And, you know, the Persians were just as good as anyone else at putting down rebellions. I mean, we we don't want to be, uh, you know, silly about it. On the other hand... Uh, one of the things the Greeks found, of course, and one of the reasons Alexander was encouraged uh, in his own gambit to, to conquer the empire was that actually it didn't have a vast standing army in that sense. It wasn't like the Roman army with legions. It, it, it relied on levies. It had a sort of a core unit, uh, basically the guard. And largely the empire was was held together by the idea of you know, the justice that the king provided, you know, you paid tribute to the king. So it wasn't a it wasn't a militarized state in that sense, uh, not as later empires might be. Um, it was far more um, based on sort of standards of government justice and so on and so forth and what people believe. So th- there was a sort of a an interest in some of the subject peoples, interestingly enough, in being uh, part of the empire. But of course, when some elements rebelled, such as the Egyptians, it took an enormous time for the for the Persians to bring them back under control, if ever. And of course, the the Greeks often fought as mercenaries for various uh, groups, particularly with the Egyptians and others. And they soon discovered, really, including in their own uh, defence of their own homeland against the Persian invasions of Darius and Xerxes, that not only could they hold their own in a sense and sort of defending what was very mountainous terrain, because you know they, their form of warfare suited obviously their terrain. Um, and the Persians, who were much more mobile in terms of their warfare, they couldn't really uh, extend their, their grip that much. But they soon discovered throughout the uh, centuries of Pax Persica, if I can put it that way, that as mercenary and, as an, and, and others, and the famous example is Xenophon, of course. So Xenophon actually takes his 10,000. He actually goes to a Persian claimant, Cyrus the Younger, um, hires these 10,000 mercenaries to sort of go and fight for the throne. Of course, they lose, and then these mercenaries have to, you know, the, the long march back to the sea, basically through Anatolia. And what they discover, really, is that 
goodness, you know, you can get right to the heart of the empire and out of it without really being harassed or anything. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, it was a hellish journey, but it could be done. You know, this was the thing. So in the Greek mindset, the empire was militarily vulnerable. Um, it could be done. And this is what, of course, encouraged Alexander at the end of the day. But the Persians were always used to basically buying off. They always felt that they didn't have anything to worry about the Greeks because the Greeks were too busy beating up each other. And, you know, Persian gold would always help to suit one side or the other. And in actual fact, you know, even when you look at the Greek and Persian wars, or as, you know, as the Persians might call it, the Greek wars, they weren't particularly fussed about, the, you know, the Persian, the Greek wars. I mean, basically, at the end of the day, what the Persians did not achieve by military conquest, they achieved basically by political and, and uh, financial means you know they basically got the spartans to beat up the athenians essentially and you know so i mean it was you know it was essentially as long as they keep them divided there wasn't a problem alexander or philip his father's great achievement was to unite the greeks on this great persian venture and of course you know the the conquest you know it, it wasn't quite as easy as as people make out i mean it was a, a longer term thing i mean obviously in the in the long view of history it was it was seen as something really quite dramatic but there were some pretty major uh, battles fought along the way and ultimately what really mattered i suppose on on the on the greek side and the macedonian side was both the genius of uh, alexander himself and his boldness i mean he was extremely bold but also the the sophistication in a sense or the way in which greek you know the greek um, army at the time of the macedonian army or the phalanx and all that i mean they they had a different way in warfare that they were able really to outmaneuver uh, really far larger Persian armies that were less organised in that sense at that stage. I mean, this was the problem. That's fascinating when you mention how it was, they were able to get into the heartlands as it mm. were, of the Persian Empire. And in that regard, when we look at Alexander's campaigns and we look at Galgamela, even the Battle of the Persian Gate and his arriving in Mesopotamian Persia, this is this is a brutal conquest. It's I mean, any resistance is snuffed out, as it were. Well, it's not only that. I mean, I think, you know, Alexander basically, I mean, if you look, you know, at his treatment of the Greek mercenaries who were fighting, of course, for the Persians at the time, he wanted to to, to identify this as a sort of a Greek crusade. I mean, to, to use a somewhat anachronistic term in this sense, but nonetheless, he, he wanted as a, uh, as a sort of a Greek crusade. And with the many Greeks actually fighting for the Persian king, you know, this was not the done thing. So he was pretty ruthless with them. And... Given, you know, Alexander's rather healthy self-conceit, if I can put that conceit of himself, you know, that he obviously thought he had some sort of divine mission and he really was divine, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, anything goes. What's interesting about it, I suppose, at the end of the day, is as brutal as he was in the conquest. And, it, you know, the Persians resist that. I mean, they, this is the interesting thing, of course, is that the closer you get to the Persian hardlands, the more the Persians really fight. I mean, then they really realise something's up here. But... So, you know, he has to read it. And of course, you've got to bear in mind he's a long way from home, you know, from a strategic perspective for him. You know, there's no there's no room for, for mistakes at this stage. You see, I mean, the force is fairly small. So he also does, I think, um, at the end of the day, realise that there has to be an element of political co-option at work, you know, particularly with elements of the Persian aristocracy that are coming over. So the defeat of the dynasty means that basically... Alexander realises with the modest forces that he has. I mean, one of the things that I think people don't often fully grasp is the size of the territory in which we're dealing with. I mean, if you think of the size of the Persian Empire, even in its 
you know, the, the Western reaches of it, you're really talking about the size of Western Europe, at least, you know. So you're fighting, what is Alexander's army, 30, 40,000? I mean, you know, you're not talking about a huge number. Of, so traipsing across this huge territory, um, in order to secure it, there has to be a balance between the military and the political. Now, the problem with some of the political, of course, and this goes to his sacking of Persepolis, is there's a lot of uh, debate about whether the burning of Persepolis was deliberate or not. And, you know, obviously the Persians thought it was complete sacrilege and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, what he was doing was basically to wipe out, you know, the memory of the sort of the Archimedes. I mean, the balance of the evidence is probably that it was an accident and that he really regretted it. You know, he had a bit of a drunken night and uh, so on and so forth. But, you know, the argument is, and the argument retrospectively given is, of course, it was revenge for the burning of the Acropolis. I, on balance, think that he, you know, he's the sort of person, I mean, Alexander, having conquered it, basically thought this was his. You know, so there's no point in burning your own, you know, destroying what you, your, own, uh, your own fortune. But it's quite clear at the same time that I think certainly among his, what the record says, certainly among his own troops, a lot of them were probably less sympathetic. I mean, you know, for Alexander, he wanted to build a universal empire and the universal empire required him to sort of build and co-opt with some of the elements he found there. I think some of his senior officers were, were much more sceptical about this notion that, you know, they should all marry into and sort of buy into the Persian silence. But, you know, th there's this argument that Alexander, of course, became very seduced by this whole idea of Persian kingship. And there's a wonderful book by a, a French historian uh, of, of the period where he basically argues that Alexander was the last of the Archimedes. I mean, he basically, he was the last of the Persian kings. Now, there's an interesting tale in that, of course, because if you go to the Alexander romance that is then, you know, introduced into Persian mythology in a sense that's exactly what he is you know he basically comes in and so in a curious way the Persian mythology is also no less true if I can put it that way because what it's basically saying is whether he was genetically the son of the Persian king or not which obviously he wasn't the fact is he subsumed and became seduced by all this stuff and and really became more Persian than the Persians in some way much to the disgust of his of, of his officer corps so I think you know there was a huge I mean I think where the 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 Zoroastrian priesthood in particular take a real dislike to him of course is that whether there is this sort of co-option and whatever there is definitely a Hellenization that goes on certainly after Alexander's death and that Hellenization sees the destruction in some ways of the sort of privileged position of the, the Zoroastrian priesthood had and you know like all good societies it's the Zoroastrian priesthood or the priesthood that writes the histories of course so what they're doing is they're writing they're deeply unhappy about Alexander because Alexander isn't a good Zoroastrian I mean he may be a good Persian but he's not a good Zoroastrian but one of the you know one of the things to show his sort of his co-option is there's this wonderful story and you can correct me if I go I think it's an Aryan where he go he visits the tomb of Cyrus the Great and he's a apparently deeply moved by it and you know that he orders that the tomb be basically protected and cleared up and whatever and there's this very poignant inscription that they claim is on there where it says you know that cyrus has the inscription on there that says you know man i am cyrus founder of the persian empire do not begrudge me this simple monument i mean it's an enormously powerful sort of statement and i think it says that you know alexander sat there and, and basically pondered you know on the legacy so in that way you know he is in some ways sees himself as the heir funnily enough of cyrus and of course this causes problems with his own with his own forces so you know there's that wonderful phrase that people use i, I don't know where it, it's sort of apocryphal but they see a you know, captive persia took prisoner her conquerors well you know alexander is another example of this person who goes out to really cause hell gets there and sort of is seduced by it all and then becomes more persian than the persians so what you find in the narratives 
is that the Macedonian uh, dynasty, the Seleucids who take over Seleucus, you know, after Alexander's death, I mean, that dynasty lasts for about, I don't know, 100 years, a century or so. And there is quite a lot of Hellenization that goes on, obviously, in that part of the world. The Parthians who then succeed restore this sort of Iranian narrative. Uh, but it's a distinct Iranian narrative. It's an Eastern Iranian narrative, the one that feeds the sort of mythology. But of course, because of the Hellenization, they then imbue, draw in the Alexander romance into that. It's a marriage of cultures. And in some ways, then, of course, the Parthians achieve what the Macedonians couldn't do. And that is the marriage of the two cultures. They basically incorporate. But whereas under the Macedonians, they were the Hellenized were the top dog with the Persians as the lower element. Now with the Parthians, you get the Iranian stroke Persian, but they're Iranian more properly because they're east from the eastern Iranian lands. They become the top dog and then incorporate elements of Hellenization within it, including that image of Alexander, who then becomes this rather mythical figure. I mean, he doesn't really bear much relation to the historical figure. Uh, but then, you know, as, as always with these stories, all the nasty things he did suddenly get lost. <laughs> you know, the, the, they forget about it. All they concentrate on are his heroic, his heroic. And he becomes a bit of a paladin, actually, in a way. He becomes a sort of a knight errant more than anything else. And that's that's really the image of Alexander. You get Iskandar, you know. I mean, Iskandar is a very popular name in Persian. Um, and he's seen as entirely legit. He's part of the family. He's part of the family. He's not seen as someone as something alien at all. But at the beginning, of course, he was seen as something alien. I mean, he was seen as something very, very destructive. And it's often, as I say, very difficult to get people grown up in Western culture, the Western narratives of uh, uh, the emergence of the West, to actually to actually recognize this, that from a Persian perspective, he was seen as an absolute troublemaker. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, you mentioned it earlier. It was one of the key examples of him as a, a troublemaker is at Persepolis. And why in Persian and Iranian history is the sacking of Persepolis so significant? Well, the interesting thing about the narrative, of course, is that the sacking of Persepolis is significant because from a Zoroastrian perspective and um, from an, you know, an ancient and authentic, if I was to say, ancient Persian perspective, Persepolis is the ceremonial capital. And I hope one day you'll get the opportunity to go there, by the way, because it's a magnificent, um, magnificent ruin, if I can put it that way. But it's a magnificent sort of setup. If you look at Persepolis, one of the striking things when you go there is that the friezes that you have on the wall, for instance, 
are not military scenes. If you go to the Assyrian, you know, you just go to the British Museum and you have a look at the Assyrian war freezes, it's sieges and murder and slaughter and this sort of thing. I mean, it's all about the glories of the kings on their wars. If you go to Persepolis, there's not any scene of war fighting. There's nothing. Basically, the freezes are, you do get the guards, so you get the immortals and others and they're wonderful. And you've got to remember, I mean, one of the striking things about Persepolis is that all these freezes, a bit like these Roman statues that we... Um, we always imagine they're all these, you know, white marble and blah, blah, blah. In fact, they're all painted, you know, in their origins, they're all painted, they're all in glorious technicolour. And these, you know, long friezes of Persian guards would have looked wonderfully impressive. And then what you have is a series of the subject peoples of the empire coming bearing gifts to the ruler. You know, there's no one, you know, it's not like they're in chains being taken to the thing. They're just, you know, and the reason is, is because, of course, you know, Persepolis is a ceremonial capital where the Persian New Year was celebrated. So when it came to the Persian New Year in March, at the beginning of spring, the Persian king would go and sit himself up and Persepolis set himself up. And then, you know, all the various subject people would come and give gifts and tribute. And so it had this sort of iconic status, really, for them. And it was seen as phenomenally wealthy. For, I mean, it wasn't the most, I have to say, um, important of the cap. I don't think there was a single capital in the Persian. I mean, there was various capitals that they used from Ekbatana in the north, modern Hamadar, and they had Susa. Babylon was actually used uh, quite often as a sort of a, a, a capital. But Persepolis, in a sense, was this. You know, it was the heart. It was the the core. It was the heartland. It was where it was almost like you know Winchester for the English, if I remember that way. You know, it was it was this idea. This is where it all began. It's not true. That's where it all began. But nonetheless, that's where they sort of had this thing. So for for um, Alexander, it was symbolic. I mean, it was enormously symbolic that to destroy Persian power, Persepolis, in a sense, had to go. But as I said, you know, the evidence is unclear about whether he thought, you know, this was a deliberate act of vandalism. And if it was deliberate, then it was an act of vandalism. There's no doubt about it. But it was, um, uh, you know, as I said, there are doubts about it. I mean, the other thing I should say about Persepolis, which is worth just noting, is that the architecture of the city as well was an imperial architecture. So one of the striking things, of course, the Iranians don't normally are very grateful for this pointing out. But if you look at the marvellous columns and the huge, um, you know, you go through the gateway of nations and you go to the upper Dana and this sort of thing. These were all built by Greek masons. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's basically the subject peoples of the empire came and offered their services and built this fantastic cosmopolitan city, effectively. So it wasn't like you could say this was a Persian architecture because Persian architecture at this time was basically a... a um, a cosmic, you know, sort of a melange of all the subject peoples that came in. So, of course, you know, what you had in the Apadana and others were essentially, in a sense, buildings on the Greek style, but done on a Persian scale, if I can put it that way. So it was far greater than the Acropolis could point out. Uh, it was huge uh, in terms of a, a sort of a columned but roofed building supported by these enormous columns. So you still see some of them, you know, now uh, in a state of disrepair, obviously. But it, it was it was a striking difference. So it was a symbol, really, of Persian power. And as a consequence, I think that's why what the value for Alexander was in getting there. Because actually, by the time he got there, to be perfectly honest, in terms of the physical Persian military martial power, it was it was finished. I mean, it was done by then. As it goes on, as Alexander, he goes to the Far East, then he comes back. And you mentioned, on, you touched on it earlier, with visiting Cyrus's tomb at Pasargadae and, and all that. Mm. But do we start seeing him really adopting more and more Persian customs and Persian practices? 
Yes, I mean that's the thing. Uh, one thing I, the, one thing, if I may, just add on the Persepolis thing is, of course, it, as a ceremonial capital, it wasn't the other thing to bear in mind. It wasn't a walled city or anything. I mean, it wasn't defended in that sense. It was actually quite open. So that's that's also quite interesting. And that also is, uh, signifies, in some ways, the sort of empire the Persian Empire was. It didn't need those protections. It was seen as so far in the heartland of the Persian Empire that nobody's going to touch it. But yes, you're quite right. I mean, I think Alexander takes on more and more of the characteristics of of uh, Persian kingship. Now, there's a question mark here with scholars. Again, you know, we don't that particularly on the question of divinity, for instance. I mean, there's this sort of notion that uh, the idea that Alexander saw himself as some sort of divine uh, king. I mean, how we understand the question of divinity, of course, in that whether it's divine right or whatever. Um, some people argue that's actually a very Hellenic idea. It was not a Persian idea and that they didn't have this idea of their kings being, quote, divine, but they did have the notion of the king being divinely legitimized, if I can put it that way. You know, there was a divine order. And I think in some ways what um, Alexander liked about it, I mean, what he, it's difficult to say, you know, it's 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 difficult to convey this in some ways to, to a modern sort of leadership. But of course, if you were to divide between the civilization and barbarism, for the people of the ancient world and classical world, I mean, I mean, even the Greeks obviously thought the Macedonians were in some ways somewhat barbarous, you know, but in their own way. But the point was, was that the Persians were the epitome of civilization. I mean, they were what constitutes civilization. So it seems natural in some ways in those days that the Greeks, although they would have in their own conception regarded themselves as civilized and the others, the non-Greek speakers basically as talking a barbarous tongue, what's difficult for us in some ways to get is when obviously the Greeks are using that language they're not describing these people as savages I mean they're not barbarous is a, is a, is a, is a quite a distinct there's a distinct understanding to it but it's also true that you see throughout the 200 years of the Persian Empire Greek account after Greek account even Aeschylus you know in his play on the Persian whatever there's a sort of a annoying respect for the Persians I mean they're not free they're all subject to the king but there's also something about them that isn't, you know, we're not talking about tribes out in the wild and beyond. I mean, these are people who are quite uh, sophisticated in their own way. And I think, of course, that's what that's what Alexander ultimately is seduced about. He's seduced by the style, the fashion, the culture, the approach, you know, the luxury, the wealth of it. I mean, the wealth of it would have blown his mind, really. I mean, it was just something else. So I think all these things impressed him. And I think you know, the, the the thing is, and I'm speculating here to a point, but, you know, you get this impression that he grows up with a certain impression of the Persians. He then goes there and has has a sort of a conversion. <laughs> you know, he says, actually, they're not quite as awful as I thought they were. You know, I mean, they actually do things that are quite interesting. So I think that's what, you know, he bought into. And, and then what he decides to do effectively, as I say, is to become a Persian king. And this appalls. I mean, what he wants to do is have a marriage between these two things. But it's quite difficult. It's a, it's an unequal marriage in a, in cultural terms. It's an unequal marriage. So it becomes quite difficult for him to sustain. Um, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened had he lived. I mean, had he lived, it would have been very interesting to see how he would have managed it. You know, we sort of know that he went, he adopted these practices uh, to an extent because obviously of the opposition that then emerged. You know, obviously his men weren't happy about it or his generals weren't happy about it. So he'd obviously, in their view, gone too far. Yes. Are there any of Alexander's generals who really share Alexander's, well, how, mu- how much he adopts Persian culture, as it were? 
It's difficult. I mean, I don't know enough about the sort of successes in that sense. I mean, I get the impression when you look at the Seleucids and, and you know, the, the uh, Ptolemy and the others, that they all do actually a fairly good job at adopting the local customs. I mean, they're not, you know, even the Seleucids. I mean, at the end of the day, the Seleucids, they have to adopt certain uh, manners and mores and others in order to be able to govern for as long as they do in essentially what was an alien land. It says something to the strength of Hellenism, of course, that they were able to do it for so long, but also that they were able to impart and leave a lasting influence of Hellenism. I mean, that's, it's certainly true that there was that. And, you know, Greek, in a sense, becomes one of the languages of the Middle East in that sense. So um, you see that in some of the inscriptions, of course, that you have inscriptions that are then in Middle Persian, you know, and then you have Greek and, and others. Um, but ultimately it isn't able by sheer weight of demographics and sheer weight of the sort of the, I wouldn't want to say they're a drop in the ocean, but, you know, as time goes on, they become more and more diluted within this Persian ocean, don't they? So it becomes extremely difficult to sustain it. And they become more and more, I think going native is too strong a term, but certainly you get that impression. And, you know, if you look at the Seleucids and the, and the, and the battles of success, of course, what the Seleucids are doing are basically, you know, in terms of strategic or their own contests and battles are basically what the Persians might have been doing anyway. Fighting off the Egyptians, fighting off the, you know, basically that's what they're doing. And, of course, the, the most powerful of the successes is Seleucius, who takes over the heartland of the Persians. I mean, that's that's where the wealth and power is, effectively. There you go. There yeah. you go. And I guess also with the latter years of Alexander's reign, of course, with the majority of the sources that classicists look at today being Greek and Roman, mm. we don't really hear about the Persians as it were. Do we have any idea of how the Persians viewed Alexander, what they thought of Alexander in like the last few years when he's showing Persian tendencies? It's difficult. It's difficult to say. I mean, you're quite right to say that our sources are few and far between. The, the sources that do provide basically uh, a negative view of him are essentially religious Zoroastrian sources. But of course, a lot of those are much later. You know, they're redacted much later and they're part of a tradition, a tradition which is largely antagonistic. But contemporaneously, it's it's extremely difficult. I mean, it's extremely difficult. In a sense, what we're doing is we're building a picture uh, with the with the benefit of hindsight and how things developed. You know, and what we do know, in the, as I said, in the literary tradition is that Alexander simply becomes subsumed within that wider Persian Iranian tradition. The, the Zoroastrian narratives that come down to us are, are later, um, but they obviously incorporate that tradition that they inherit from from people. And, you know, Alexander's very clearly the destroyer. I mean, he's the, the, they're not pulling their punches there. I mean, he's someone who's a, who's a great, great evil. So they have no soft spot for him at all. So how does following Alexander's death, how does Alexander transform, as it were, from destroyer to legendary Iranian king, Persian king? I think I think the process is one that comes with the Parthians. Now, the Parthians are, ironically, in some ways, despite the fact that historically they're one of the least covered even in in iranian narratives uh, dynasties they as a dynasty they essentially ruled iran or what we know as iran for 500 years they're the longest the single longest dynasty uh, longer than the sasanians actually who succeed them but of course like all dynasties you know the, the succeeding dynasty also always does its best to erase the memory of the previous one and the parthians in a sense succumb to that effectively they, they suffered from that but what seems to be the the sort of process that takes place is that parthians come in from the east when they overthrow the last of the Seleucids um, in the third century BC and gradually take over. They start, you know, they're quite Hellenized. They take over and they they, they adopt certain practices of the, the Greeks that were there. Uh, but they also bring with them from the east in the eastern Iranian lands, basically what would, um, you know, now be eastern Iran, Afghanistan, that sort of Central Asian, Turkmenistan, those areas. 
they bring with them this corpus of a, a sort of an Iranian narrative myth, which actually becomes the basis of the mythological history, the Book of Kings that the Iranians then adopt. The Archimedes become basically shoved to the margins. I mean, that's one of the great curiosities of Iranian historical writing, is that even through the medieval period, by the way, when you were sort of looking at um, Iranian history, the Archimedes themselves, even the key ones, Cyrus and all that, are forgotten, effectively. I don't want to over-egg that, but certainly their names are largely forgotten. The Persepolis, for instance, becomes renamed. I mean, Persepolis becomes the throne of Jamshid, and Jamshid is a mythological king. Because a lot of the Iranians that go there look at this monumental thing and they say, who the hell could have built this? Well, not any normal person. It had to be a sort of a great, you know, wise lord, you know, from from mythical past. And giants must have brought in and, and others and supernatural beings must have built this platform. So you get this mythological history basically displaces what is the Western Iranian narrative of the Archimedes and others. And within that, I think because of that merger, essentially, between the Parthians and the Hellenic, the Seleucids that they essentially subsume, you know, part of the peace process, if I can put it that way, is to incorporate an Alexander romance within their own narrative. And in, in a curious way, of course, it has a very good political purpose, because what you're doing is you're incorporating a Hellenized elite. And by actually making Alexander a Persian prince, everyone's happy. You know, everyone's happy. So, you know, then the Alexander romance becomes embellished as you go through. And I mean, of course, it, it, in, by the Middle Ages, it becomes much more flourishing. But ironically, you know, Xerxes and Darius and, and Cyrus are all largely sort of like relegated to the, the margins. I mean, Cyrus does turn up in certain areas, uh, but not as this great conquering king. I mean, he's, he, he's, he's relegated to the sort of status of a sub-king and nobody really knows who he is. It's only much, much later in the 19th and uh, centuries when the archaeologists start to decipher this stuff. So what has always baffled um, historians of ancient Iran is, of course, because Greek and Hebrew would have been known, is obviously the Greeks did talk about Cyrus. You know, the Hebrews, of course, talked about Cyrus in the Bible. And yet somehow the Iranians chose, I think deliberately chose uh, to ignore it and actually chose this much more mythical inheritance that they had because it was just much more fantastical and much much more exciting this book of kings you know because it, it's really a creation myth and that's what they that's what they adopted that's absolutely fascinating that there was an iranian alexander romance yeah yeah no i mean it's basically adopted i think from western alexander romances they just incorporated it. i have to say i mean i'm speculating as to how it happens because you know we don't know how these narratives displace each other but it seems to me that it happened during the parthian period and then it's absorbed into the sasanian period and it becomes part of that and it's part of this interesting, you know, that the way that the Iranians define it. I mean, this is, uh, if I may, I'll sort of, in a sense, conclude with this, but it's, it's an interesting. So whereas in the Western narratives, you have the Greek and Persian wars and you have the sort of East and West. In the Iranian narratives, it's actually an interfamily dispute. So the way they look at it is they say there's a king of the world and this king of the world has three sons. And of the three sons, one of them takes the East, i.e. China or what basically becomes the Turks in the East. One of them takes Rome, because they always called the West Rome by this stage, right? Uh, they become the Greeks or the Romans, but essentially Rome. But the plum, the best one, goes to the youngest son, and that's the plum, and that's Iran, you see. So he gets it. Now, what happens is the two older brothers are jealous of um, the younger son, and they murder him. And, of course, it's that fratricidal war that, in that way, that's how the Iranians explain 
this sort of east-west or you know center-east-west conflict this 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 is, is a fratricidal war and on the one hand it explains why it's so bitter but on the other hand i think it's a wonderful explanatory way of saying well actually it's a family dispute isn't it so we should all be able to get, we should ultimately recognize that and get on absolutely you know i mean it's 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 it's, it's a much more i think nuanced and interesting explanatory tool uh, rather than the sort of Herodotus uh, notion of... East versus West, yes. And Herodotus, by the way, you know, Herodotus being a Persian subject, of course, but, you know, we shan't mention that. But the, um, you know, the, the, this East-West dichotomy, which which really I mean, is a much later thing, actually, to be honest. It's a much later thing that comes out really from, I think you will know better than me on this, but, per, per, you know, from the Roman period. Really. I mean, Ale- the Alexander, the, the myth of Alexander really becomes, you know... Um, exaggerated is not the right term, but it really becomes part of a sort of a... Uh, a narrative epic under the Romans who want to sort of emphasise, you know, their own East-West conflict. You're absolutely right, they do, and for their own reasons too. Exactly. Ali, (laughs) (laughs) Ali, that was fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, any time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.